I always like to start off with talking about um, what this talk is not about. Like there's always a risk when an expert like me comes and talks about five and six year olds that there's some perfect way to do it or this right and wrong way to do it. Um, and there is no such thing as a perfect child. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. The great thing about us and our lives and our brains and our children is that we get to redo things. So mistakes are, are welcome and they happen and, and, and sort of like we're modeling for our kids all the time, which is another theme of this talk. And so we can make mistakes with our kids. Um, we have many, many, many opportunities to redo things. And so I don't want this to uh, feel like um, a way that like, oh, you have to follow this way. Or I'm going to talk about the right way to do things. Because um, I'm well aware in my work. Uh, so when I'm not here, I'm in my office um, about a mile away. Um, and I um, see a lot of the pressures that are on families and on children today, a lot of anxieties. Um, it's sort of hard not to watch the newspaper. Like every five minutes, alerts are going off. Like there's so much stress um, it only you know, uh, uh, on us and our society, our country, um, and that we're, we're dealing with that uh, all the time. Um, yet we hold in our mind, I think, some idea of what a perfect parent is and a perfect child. So there's that pressure of like, who's getting it right or who's doing it right. And as our society has changed and culture, we're further and further away from families and support. Um, I think more and more anxiety kind of creeps into those kinds of holes um, and, and helps you know, influence and affect us uh, as parents. So this is actually an anxiety reducer talk to let you all know you're a community. I think one of the nice things about the foot school is that you're starting off and many of you will be here for the next you know, eight, nine, ten years um, and that to rely upon each other um, for, for, for hope and guidance and all those kinds of things. Um, when I think about parenting, parenting is not like baking. Uh, and baking is very precise. You have to get everything right. I'm not a baker. I'm not a very precise cook. I need to like throw things in. For, to me, parenting is more like chili. Um, so what do we know about um, kindergartens? So one thing uh, that we know is that they're um, very unpredictable, right? Like from minute to minute, from day to day, um, you never know what you can get when you wake up. Um, and, uh, and you never know. And, and, and I always like to tell this story. It's maybe my, my last personal story. But so my daughter, um, when she was in kindergarten, um, she was, uh, we had just had her fall conference, um, and the teacher said she was doing very well, and that she was a July birthday, and that she was good, you know, it was, she was mature given her age and being one of the youngest in the class, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so we were like, oh, God, we made that hurdle, huh? Like, she's okay. Uh, and then about right um, after Thanksgiving, we get a call from the teacher saying, you know, I know, Michael, that, you know, Lily was doing well and blah, blah, but like we're really worried about her. And of course, my temperature started worried about her, blood pressure going, you know, this, you know, I'm telling you things from my experience, but don't worry, you know, like kids are going to be okay. Um, and she said, well, uh, th that um, Thanksgiving break, um, we had made the mistake of taking to her, I don't even know if they make Rugrats anymore, but there was a movie called Rugrats in Paris. Um, and uh, it never won an Oscar, um, but it ended with that song, Who Let the Dogs Out, right? And so the credits, the final credits, and they just played that loud song that's very like an anthem. And it turned out that our daughter decided at lunchtime every day she was going to sing that song at the top of her lungs and then, and then kind of try and list the whole class and then pound her hands on the table while she was eating. And they couldn't control, and they said that we tried to do this, and we did, you know, all good kindergarten things. They were trying to move her clap, move her seat, you know, when she even sat outside to have lunch. Da, da, da. And so, of course, we start freaking out, and I call the director of her preschool and say, you know, did Lily ever, did you ever see this? No, no, we'd never seen this. And so I went and had lunch with her. Um, and after about a week, the whole thing went away. You know, it was like with a spike. This, she had like a, she had a fever, a uh, behavioral fever, and then it went away. Um, and, you know, just so you know, um, so just last night she's on the phone. She's now 23, and she's applying to law school. So. Um, she's taking her rugrats in Paris um, uh, on the road. 
Um, but, but again, you have no idea, like your kid who could seem like the meekest, mildest person might do something. So, so this is kind of a ride, and most of it is pleasurable, but just be aware. And I also tell you that story because if you, is to like breathe, like we didn't have yoga back then so much, <laughs> mindfulness, but sort of breathe through some of these things. Um, and I'll get to sort of how to manage these kinds of things that might come up in, um, uh, with your child this year. Um, but, but basically, the way I look at five-year-olds, and we know this um, observationally and from brain development, is that they're very much into exploring, into playing, into inventing, and into tinkering. And this is how our classrooms here are set up, right? If you look around the room, there are no, we would never expect five-year-olds to sit like this. And if you ever went to a kindergarten that had a room like this, you'd think, what's going on here? Um, because not only could they not tolerate it, their brains couldn't tolerate it. So what do we know about five-year-olds and their brains? Well, we know that the first five years of life um, that there's an incredible explosion of connections between the neurons in the brain. That we're born with basically a full complement of neurons, but what makes us who we are and allows us to grow and develop is all the connections that form. And since babies don't know where they're going to be born or what they need to know, there's an incredible redundancy in the brain. And so what the brain does over the first three to five years is it's creating hundreds of trillions. There's about 500 billion neurons and there's thousands and thousands, thousand trillion connections. And um, it's kind of bedlam in the brain. You know, if you looked inside the brain of a five-year-old and compared it to one of us, like I have slides like that that I use with undergraduates, but ours are basically blue, kind of cold, and theirs are on fire. They're yellow and red. Um, and that's how it's supposed to be. That's how they learn. That's how they figure out their world. That's how they um, learn language. How, that, that's how they become who they are. Um, but it's kind of, and if you looked at activity levels, at the activity level of a five-year-old's brain is twice the level of the brain of all of us sitting in this room, at least for myself. So it helps us understand why living with a five-year-old can be like bedlam sometimes, um, and why we would never expect them to sit here uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a classroom like you are, because they can't do the things that older people can do. They can't focus, pay attention, um, they can't sit in their seat, um, they can't just um, think that I'm the most, I know you're all thinking I'm the most important person in the room right now, um, but a five-year-old is gonna be open and thinking a lot about everything else that's going on. Um, and so, uh, good morning, Kazuth. Um, so, um, uh, uh, so, so all of this brain development is not happening in a vacuum. It's happening in a context. And the context that it's happening in is in relationships. And probably the most important thing for your five-year-olds, you know, for your children in general, are, are their relationships. Um, and that that's the medium and the culture in which all this takes place. Um, and that's really how the curriculum here and how the philosophy of the school is really designed so that that it's based on relationships, and not just relationships with teachers, but the teachers here focus so much on the relationships on the classroom, uh, on the community. And it's through this community um, that your children are going to learn and grow. Um, and so, um, uh, uh, so that's why I say in kindergarten, you're not gonna see what it looks like in second or third grade, um, that learning um, for five-year-olds is, is much more experiential that they learn math and they learn reading, not by sitting and being drilled uh, with flashcards, but they learn by exploring and tinkering. That's how their brains work. Um, Alison Guy, who's a researcher out on the West Coast, uh, who's written a lot about the brains and brain development of, of infants and babies and, and you know, up through preschoolers and kindergartners, she talks about the difference between an adult brain and a child brain. And the term that she uses that I find to be very helpful are that we're exploiters and that young children are explorers. And what she means by that is that we look in our environment for what's most useful to us. We want to get from point A to point B very quickly. Um, and that a, uh, a five-year-old doesn't have that goal-oriented, directed way of thinking about the world. They're kind of looking all over and they're absorbing everything. 
we talk about, or people will say that five-year-olds can't pay attention, and actually the problem is that they pay too much attention. They're paying attention to everything around them. They just can't focus, because their brain, all those synapses, all those neurons, all those things firing, are absorbing everything that's going on around them. Um, and so they want to know what's unexpected and new. So when infant researchers look at babies and, and young children, um, they're much more easily distracted by something that's unpredictable and new, whereas we look at things that are expectable. So we're exploiting, and we need to do that. Like, that's how we do our jobs. We probably get fired if I, if I you know, if people showed up to work and we're just like la-di-da all around, um, the, uh, 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 they, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be too productive. Their productivity is in absorbing everything uh, that they can. So the, one of the best experiments that shows is, is you know, called the gorilla experiment, where there's a, uh, adults and children are shown a video clip. And the video clip has two people throwing a ball back and forth to each other. And the instruction to the, to the person doing the experiment is to count how many times they successfully pass the ball back and forth. Halfway through the video, a person in a gorilla costume walks across. Um, and what happens is all the children, you know, statistically even more children stop and get distracted by the gorilla, and many of the adults won't even have seen the gorilla walk by, because we're so focused on one. You know, we want to get it right. Um, we want to answer the question. We want to complete the task. And so for children, they're much less likely to do that. Their brains direct them to explore, observe, imagine, and figure out their worlds. Um, I have another story that I like to relate. So. Um, in a personal one, so I, um, hey, good morning. Um, I was um, one day, so I, I work on Bradley Street, and, and I uh, often park at the, uh, at the New Haven Long Club, and I walk to my car, and I, uh, one day, and behind the SOM, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but the prettiest part of SOM, the only pretty part of my mind of SOM, is behind it, there's this grassy field. Sorry for that editorializing, but um, there's this pretty grassy field behind it, and it kind of slopes upward. Um, and so I was walking, like, you know, charging to my car, maybe I had to get home or get groceries, or I was being like this exploiter of my environment and not watching anything. And I was walking behind uh, a mom and her young child, and there was a little girl in like a flowery little dress, and she was like picking the daisies and, you know, looking what was going on. And, and you know, you know how your kids, like when you're in a rush, they're like, they pick up a twig and they pick up a shell and they pick up, and you're like, come on, we gotta get going. You know, don't you know we were like on the clock here on the clock? Um, and and that's an example. And, and what I didn't realize is I blew by this mother and child. Was actually I knew them. <laughs> um, it wasn't like past them that I was like, because I'm like all going. And, and so it was a perfect example of like the, the little child who's sort of exploring and looking at her world and figuring things out, um, not very goal-directed. And so that's what you can come to expect um, in a classroom. You know, I, I think I was thinking this morning about the geniuses who figured out kindergarten um, you know, in the mid-19th century. That's a whole other talk about first kindergartens here and the kindergartens in Germany. Um, but they kind of, they didn't need a functional MRIs, right? Um, and, and that's why I have such respect for kindergarten teachers, because they don't need a functional MRI study to show them the things that I'm telling you. Um, they know this. This is how they are. This is how they, they work with, with your children. Um, the nice thing now is we have science to prove it. And sort of in the way in which my world works is it's really helpful because there's such a push, such a push to make kindergarten and preschool flashcards and drills and no child left behind. And, um, children will learn to read much better if they're given materials to explore. They'll learn math, they'll learn spatial concepts if they're given blocks and trucks and different ways to think about their world. Um, so, so that's sort of my sense about sort of how brain development works. But I really want to move on to sort of social and emotional competence, which I think is really the hallmark of how I think about kindergartens. I know that teachers here think about five and six-year-olds. Um, they will all learn, they will all grow, they will all develop. But the key thing for doing well you know, not just in kindergarten, but in life, is really how they manage things in their social world and their emotional worlds. 
Um, and, and it all starts with um, separation. So, well, one, one other story, maybe I have more stories, but. So when my daughter, again, Lily was born, you remember your first child, you sort of don't remember the second pregnancy. The first pregnancy is like the whole world stops, right? And everything is so important. Um, and, uh, and, and then when the baby comes, you realize, oh, what was all that about? I wasted so much time thinking about the pregnancy. But I was just like that, right in that world where, you know, you get your baby home. And in those days, there were uh, cell phone pictures, but I'm sure it's the same thing. We would look at her all day long, and then she'd go to bed, and then we'd look at pictures of her. Uh, okay, I'm glad other people are guilty of this, too. Um, and so you're, you're so excited, and, you know, it's a, I think it's a universal thing that most parents will say something like, I know it's my child, but isn't she the most beautiful child? Or I know her mom, but isn't this, uh, you know? Um, and so I uh, went to one of my um, teachers at the Child Study Center. I just finished my fellowship after uh, our daughter was born. And I said, so excited, God, Lily was born. And she looked at me and she said, now the separation begins. <laughs> and I was like, what? What a way to deflate my balloon. Um, but it's true. You know, life is about managing separation. And kindergarten is a pretty major separation. Um, sort of psychologically, it's, you know, many of you kids were in daycare from six weeks old or three months or, you know, maybe went to preschool at three. So they've been separating for a long time. But somehow kindergarten, I think, is a real milestone and a real marker. Um, and so how we and they deal with separation, I think, is very important. Um, and some of your kids might have been that little girl who was crying, you know, when I was in kindergarten. Um, and some of your kids might have been, like me, charging right in. But each child, no matter how they look on the outside, is having to manage separation. Um, and they manage it all day long. So some of your children might be in kindergarten all day long and not have any issues. But they come home and they start crying or falling apart or get very cranky. Um, that's very normal. Um, and I think what those children are doing are holding it together all day long. They are missing mommy, they're missing daddy, they're missing, you know, being home, or they're missing their old school, they're missing their old friends, um, but they don't show it on the outside. And then when they come home, then I can sit down and say, you know, mom, I'm really missing you all day long, and like, I'm thinking about what are you doing, and you know, the, how do five-year-olds express themselves through their body, right? They express themselves through their body and through their behaviors, and so they become like little, you know, he and she devils at home. Um, and they act out and they're cranky. Um, and a lot of that has to do, especially at the beginning, with this new process of separation. For those children who are comfortable <laughs> expressing, you know, they may be having some issues. They may be crying. I imagine by this time of the year, there's some kindergarten teachers here in the room. I'm not sure, we probably don't have too many people left, but there's still some kids who are clinging. You know, it comes out maybe in little ways, like, you know, holding on to their mom or dad or wanting an extra story. And all of that is normal. I want to normalize all of that because they're dealing with uh, separating from you. Um, the, um, but we're also dealing with separating from them. So separation is always a two-way street. So we tend to focus mostly on the, our children and how they're separating from us. But we also have to manage that. How are we getting through our day? And what are ways in which we either support their becoming independent? And what are ways do we kind of reinforce that separation? Um, and so I think uh, uh, for those of you who might be having you know, maybe some issues with your child, you know, that's something maybe to talk to your kindergarten. You know, let your teacher know. I think it's always better to have more information at school. Um, and I also think you can sort of gradually, and this is not a talk about specifics, you know, how to, but I think a gradual separation. Um, and the other thing to realize is that your children are often sturdier than you think. <laughs> um, I mean, many of you may have this experience earlier when you leave your kids screaming at daycare and, and you're, you, you, you can't probably get an accident on Whitney Avenue or something. Um, but by the time you go to work and you might call, like your child has totally settled down. Um, that most separation is like a big peak and goes down. Um, and so I think that um, it's sort of how we help our children through separation will help them separate from us. Part of their separation is a, a dynamic that goes on within five-year-olds, um, which is 
I, I wish to be little and I wish to be big, right? So sometime they want to be a little baby and curl up in your lap or do all those things that they used to do. Um, um, they may want you to treat them as if they were an infant, especially if they're little kids at home. Uh, that often pulls to that. But on the other hand, and maybe even an hour later, they want to be like a teenager, right? And so sometimes you don't know who you have or who you're dealing with. All of that is completely normal because that's part of their process of figuring out who they are. And it's very hard for them to be right where they're supposed to be. And most of the time they are. Um, but they want to be held. They want to be cuddled. They want to be, you know, um, you know, whatever you know, little babies want. But they also want to have control. Um, and they want to control you. Um, and, uh, and, and we'll get to that later, sort of how to, how to do that. Um, the other part of, of separation has to do with fears and anxieties. And the way I think about anxieties in children, so one, they're very normal. Like it's, we're human beings, and anxiety is a warning system, right? So any fear we have, especially when we're little, is a way to get protection. So if we think about the parade of anxieties, the normal ones that come out even in infancy, so they have separate stranger anxiety and then separation anxiety, they always usually occur at times of independence. So when kids can start to sit up and notice their world in different ways, they start to notice other people. So grandma who came at one month and three months and five months, you know, you can just hand your baby over typically. But sort of once they get to six to nine months, you know, grandma or grandpa might come and, and they scream and then they go, what, they don't love me, you know, I don't see them enough. And they don't, but they don't realize that that's actually a brain development where they're detecting differences. And as they develop and move forward, the step back is to say, well, wait a minute, I still need you, right? So when they start to walk, separation anxiety usually coincides. The first um, uh, glimmerings of it is when they can move away from you. And so there's this both move away, I can walk, I can run across the room, but they also start to, all of a sudden they get really far and they turn around and they go, oh my God, where'd you go? Or, or if you leave them, right, if you think they're old enough to like, step into the room and they start crying. So most of this anxiety is about separation and most of the anxiety is about keeping you close because in order to survive as a species, we've needed to develop a system that keeps people who can protect us close to us. And so we see that in our children. And so it's no surprise at kindergarten that this thing might emerge again, that at the same time as they're being a big girl or big boy and going off to kindergarten and learning all these things and we're so proud of them, they're also a little bit scared and they also might be a little bit afraid. This is also the age that other anxieties come out like fears of the dark, fears of things under the bed, a lot of five-year-olds might not want to be in a different, if you have a two-level house, they might not want to be upstairs when you're downstairs. Often, they may not want to go to the bathroom by themselves. Um, and this can often make parents very worried. Again, in the theme of normalizing things, um, they want to be, have you close to them. Um, and they want to not be separate from you because they have fears of what could happen. It's kind of like, who is this you know, silver-haired woman who thinks she knows me and loves me at six months, or you know, at, at 18 months, the same separation. It's just a different iteration of those kinds of anxieties. And it's basically about, I really want to be big, but I also want to be little. And that can become you know, a struggle that many of you face on a daily basis with your kids because they think they're ready for something and you've given them that responsibility and then they want to you know, retract that. Um, so and what else are five-year-olds like? I'd like to talk about the physical world that they live in um, versus the verbal world that they live in. And in a community like New Haven, in a community like Foot School, that we, pr we prize verbal abilities. Um, we place a lot of emphasis on that for very good reasons. You know, it's a way to, to um, communicate with your world. It's a way to express yourself. It's a way to be successful. Um, and so I wouldn't not want to put a, you know, a, a premium on verbal abilities. But often what that does is it can confuse us as parents because while their verbal abilities might be accelerated, their emotional life is really not as accelerated. Um, 
And so they may be in a verbal world that looks like they're 8, 9, or 10, but their physical world is much behind that. And so that mismatch for children can create issues, and sometimes for parents can create issues because they may not know who they're dealing with, and they think they have this child with whom they can have a sophisticated conversation. But even though they you know, might you know, ha have an SAT score that registers, those words are not always attached to a meaning. You know? And so their concepts that they think to have that we value and, and support might not also relate to where they actually can function uh, emotionally. And that also happens in the other direction in terms of the physical world. They are watching us and what we do. So children may not have a genius IQ on a verbal score, but children, I'm convinced, have a genius IQ on a nonverbal score. They know what we're, they can tell what we're thinking, how we're doing, what's going on. You know, it's that kind of thing where your three-year-old knows the mom is pregnant before she's even showing. You know, all of a sudden she's playing with dolls or the son is playing, you know, whatever he's playing. That You say, how do they know that? How do they know that? Or they, they know that because for the same reasons about anxiety, it helps protect them. It helps keep them safe. And very early on, they've been watching us. You know, our visual system is very well developed, you know, at birth. And so they're keeping an eye, they're keeping track of where we are, what we're doing, how we're reacting. Um, and so they can tell if there's a mismatch. So if we're really upset about something, and they say, Mommy, why are you crying? Oh, I'm not crying. I'm fine. Um, you know, they, they, they know when we're lying. Um, uh, or we're really tense about something, and we say we're fine. It's OK to tell them you're sad. You, you don't have to go into all the reasons why. You don't have to tell them everything. But it's more important for them to know exactly what's going on. Um, and they're also watching us in the world. You know, so we're their first role models. Um, and so we may communicate some values to them verbally, like treat your friends nicely. Um, and that's a, obviously probably the core foundation in kindergarten here is treat your friends. How are you with friends? How are you talking to each other? How are you getting along? We're creating a community. Um, but if they watch us um, not behave in that same way outside to people on the phone, to people in stores, they're sort of reading all of those kinds of things. They're real experts at, at keeping us uh, honest and following what we do. Um, so what else about five-year-olds? Running down my list. They're altruists. The one thing I love about five-year-olds is they have good hearts. Even though at times they seem like they're lying and manipulative and they're just getting to do that. Like, ignore all of that. The basic foundation of five-year-olds is to do a good job. They really want to please us. Again, why do they want to please us? Because they know that keeps us close. They know that keeps It's a great arrangement, actually, biologically, that they want to make us happy. They want to have a relationship to keep us close. Um, and so they can take real pride in things. So, you know, a lot of the work that the teachers do with your children is to, you know, if they say harm someone or hit someone or said an unkind thing, instantly what happens is let's talk about, um, you know, how you made this child feel or how you uh, affected this child's body. And usually nine times out of ten, you know, children will stop and think, oh my goodness, I didn't do something right. Or teachers can appeal to their altruism, and I encourage you to appeal to their altruism. It may not work with their siblings. <laughs> this is not, uh, I think altruism doesn't apply to siblings. Um, uh, sometimes it does, um, especially in cars, right? Especially in cars. Get a kid out of the car, right? Don't you think, like I always said, like kids, if you have more than one child, there should be like one of those, someone should invent like a driver's seat and two separate cars. The backs of cars, right? Like minivans aren't good enough. Like whoever invented minivans is marked at least. So you have two cars, so they couldn't. She's looking at me. He's looking at me. You know. Um, but anyway, but um, but they can, and and so the jobs that they have, you know, whether they're feeding the bunny or watering a plant or, like, bringing a note to the the front, you know, the the look on a five-year-old's face when they're asked to do something, I think communicates really uh, how altruism um, really operates. Um, they're also concrete. So getting back to the language thing, even though they may have sophisticated vocabulary. 
they're very concrete about their worlds. And you may have them, and they also like to believe their peers more than you sometimes. So you may have the experience of someone you know, coming home and telling you, um, oh, like th this was from a different school. This happened yesterday. I was uh, talking to some parents, and they said there was a first grader who came home and said, oh, he was having trouble with another kid. And he said, oh, I karate chopped him in the neck. You know? um, and uh, of, of course, like, he didn't karate chop it. Uh, but, but he believed it. And another kid once said that, you know, um, a boy from Madison said to another you know, kindergarten, you know, there was a volcano erupted last night in Madison. And, you know, you look at your child and you say, well, no, like, you know, and, and you have that experience where they come home with some fact that they hold true to their facts. These concrete facts, they are like life and death to them. And you probably, I see these nods that it's very hard to get them off that. And my advice is don't argue. If they think there's a volcano in Madison, um, it's really okay. Um, and uh, they live in the here and now, and they don't really think about consequences, right? And part of growing and developing um, is learning about consequences um, and seeing that there's a different point of view. So this gets at how five-year-olds have, often have a hard time with that different point of view. Sometimes adults have trouble with a different point of view. Um, but five-year-olds certainly, I mean, our brains, we're expected to be able to go into someone else's mind, appreciate how they're thinking or feeling, and then go back into our mind and then react to that. You know, that's what we call empathy, right? And so five-year-olds are on the cusp of empathy. They have like the basic skills. It's kind of fragile. And so when they're in the right kind of mindset and the right kind of feeling and the stars are aligned, they can kind of get empathy. Um, so sometimes the question I get asked, oh, will my child turn out to be like an axe murderer? <laughs> or like, will, is he antisocial? Or is he going to lie forever? And no, no, those are like the wrong concepts when we think about five-year-olds. Again, empathy is a fragile. Think of all the brain work that's required, like as I just went through you to be empathic. Those, those are many, many steps. And, and even when kids seem empathic at five, it, it's just really, it's like this fragile system that has to be reinforced and reinforced and repetition. That's the whole idea of mistakes that I talked at the beginning. We can make mistakes, kids can make mistakes, and it's that repetition and reminding. Uh, and, and you have to tell them, sometimes parents say, well, I've told them a million times this, and well, you'll have to tell them two million times, but that it's, it's constant. So their brains are wiring. Their brains are um, exposed to all these kinds of things. And you think about how complicated um, something like empathy is, it's going to take them um, a while. Also, it's hard because the competitive side comes in, too. Uh, and so earlier, like you could play games, and it didn't matter who won you know, so much. But at five, and they start playing games, you know, they start becoming more competitive. The Candyland game can get turned over. They can storm off. They want to start to know who's better than who. It's very mild at age five. It sort of picks up more towards middle school. Um, but competition comes in, and part of competition is aggression. And I always like to mention aggression at a talk about five and six-year-olds because they are very aggressive people. Um, we're all aggressive. You know, aggression is really part of our biological makeup. Um, and aggression really starts to come into their play. Um, and we see things like um, playing with guns, uh, Star Wars, Spider-Man, Batman. Um, kids will play this on the playground. It's sort of like a universal thing. And some parents will say, my kids never even heard of Spider-Man. Um, or he's never even heard of Star Wars or a lightsaber. Um, but they'll all hear about it soon enough. And it doesn't matter whether it's Star Wars or Spider-Man or whatever it is they're playing. They will, um, they will attach onto something. Um, and that aggression also, like all these other things I'm talking about, is a normal part of development. We have aggressive drives. We have aggressive impulses. And the idea is not to suppress them or make them go away, but how do you manage them? Like, how do you appropriately deal with aggression? How do you channel aggression to something that's like healthy competition versus you know, whacking someone all the time? Um, and so while obviously at a school like this, we wouldn't have guns or gunplay or encourage that kind of thing, 
But there's many ways that kids can be aggressive. I think, you know, four square when they get older, like that's probably one of the most aggressive games known. Um, it's also called cheat and argue. Um, <laughs> is how I like it. Four square. Um, uh, because no one really plays four square. They argue all the time. No, that's the rule, or this is the rule, or she stepped over the line, or he stepped over the line. Um, and, and tag and chase, right? How often do they play chase? And, you know, it's, like chase is probably like a daily thing. There's always a group chasing each other. So that's a form uh, of aggression. I'd call it healthy aggression. Um, the, and it's not just boys. We know that girls and boys are pretty much equally aggressive. It's just the different ways that they're aggressive. Um, I, you know, to those who've been to this talk many times, um, and I appreciate your reappearances, but what I love, my line about aggression in girls is that Barbies are guns. Barbies are basically guns. So why are Barbies guns? So Barbies, I mean, we don't even allow your girls to have Barbies for obvious reasons, but dolls are guns. But Barbies, what happens to Barbies is they're merely, they were developed in the early 60s for 8 to 10-year-old girls. You will never see a 10-year-old girl get a Barbie as a present or be caught dead playing with a Barbie. Barbies, are, they weren't meant to be guns, but Barbies are given to like 3, 4, 5-year-old girls because they see them, they're fancy, they're glittery, they're glamorous, they're whatever. They seem very appealing. Um, and, but what happens to a Barbie is they come home, they get taken out of the box, the clothes are stripped off, and their hair is cut. Um, and then what they do is fight. Um, and so I grew up with three boys, and we didn't have Barbies. And so I had this daughter, and so I thought, oh, I can play like, like I'll get into being a dad with a beard, you know, play with her, get out the Barbie camper. And all that we did was fight with them. <laughs> it was like no fun. Like, um, and so what that taught me uh, was to play something else. But um, also um, was, that, um, was that girls are just as aggressive as boys, but they just use it in different ways. Um, and and, and they just, they'll find their own ways to express it. Um, and we get to the fifth grade talk. We'll talk about how that, that comes out in fifth grade. Um, so don't be upset. Or, uh, un, uh, or worried about your child if you see, you know, now if they're actually, there are, you know, all these examples are things where we might be worried, but the average child who's showing some aggression or even once in a while, like, hits a kid, you know, we're, we're not going to freak out here if that happens. The teachers are well-skilled. There'll be several episodes of someone getting hit at some point during the year. Um, the teachers are on it. They work with the children. You know, it's the same one of those things. It kind of goes up and down. The other thing that children often are at this age, as many of you have noticed, um, is that they're curious about their bodies. Um, and so they're curious about their bodies and other bodies. Um, there's an interest in that outside world that at you know, four, five, six starts to come. And that is universal. Kids have been doing this for centuries. It is very normal for kids to be interested in body parts, um, private parts, you know, who has what, who has this. Um, and that also, we see that sometimes in kindergarten, certainly you know, four, five, six is a classic age. It's there, you know, as one of my um, favorite um, mentors and teachers talked about, until about five, kids are into like tops and bottoms. I don't focus on middles. Um, and once we're having discussion about kids' interest in this, and sort of at five or six, they had to zone in on the middle. Um, and what's in the middle, right? And they're very curious about things. So those kinds of conversations, um, you know, come up. You may hear that. But we also, what I watch for is, does it sort of go up and go away? You want to always look at the arc. If there's one sort of message from all these things we're talking about, there are these arcs of things that emerge, anxieties emerge, aggressions emerge, curious bodies, and then go away. And so what you want to do is step back, take a breath, think about it, you know, not rush to some sort of judgment, not rush to sort of put it, you know, put it aside. Talk to your teachers about it. They're experts. You know, Beth is an expert. They've been doing this for a long time. You might have, you know, a few kids at home, but they've been, you know, been around children for a, a long time. Um, and so just like with all these other things, that you know, the curiosity about the body, 
you know, I think we've become heightened to that in our society, right? You can't really go a week without pedophilia coming up. And I think, again, those anxieties are percolating into parents. Um, and so I think that we have to think about what's normal, what's universal, what goes on. Remember back to our own childhood um, and, and use us here, um, whatever the concern, whatever the concern is.